Cleveland Clinic before, you know, before COVID hit, they were doing about 3,000 virtual visits a month. And then in March, they did 60,000. Oh, good Lord. I'm Scott McGrew. Welcome to Sand Hill Road. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I was reading a Wall Street Journal article about the business prospects of contact tracing apps. Now, these are the apps we're going to put on our phone to track how coronavirus spreads. The central question of the article was how these apps will make money. And I thought, we're in a pandemic. Who cares how they make money or if they do? Well, the Wall Street Journal cares, right? The reporter, Tomio Jaron, had quoted venture capitalist Kristen Baker Spohn of CRV. You're quoted in that article. In the first paragraph, he says the business prospects for these contact tracing apps remains unclear. He's writing for the Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, he's going to write about the profitability of the apps. Mm -hmm. He's asking, what's the business model of tracking a deadly disease? And then there's one more thing I want to read you from. It's from the founders of Viz AI, which you're a major investor in. Mm-hmm. Kristen's, speaking about you, Kristen's experience at commercializing the healthcare space is invaluable. Now, I don't want you to think I'm, you know, some sort of crazy left wing radical because we're doing a podcast about capitalism after all. But <laughs> maybe not the time to commercialize the healthcare space. I mean, it was broken mm. before this, it's broken now. And I think profit's got to be one of the reasons it's broken. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, that's, that's certainly one view. I think the, uh, you know, the view on commercialization as, um, as being a bad thing, I think is, uh, I would, I would disagree with, um, you know, and I think about when new technologies or companies want to have a great impact on a space, you know, that great impact is, is not necessarily fueled by, uh, by nonprofit and by philanthropy. And so when, New innovators are coming into the space. I think that it's important that they focus on, you know, what's a business model that's going to help them grow so that they can have the impact that they want to have. Um, and in, in order to have a great impact, you do need to also have a great and regenerating business. Well, but I'm, aren't there things in our world that are not a business? I mean, local, oh, of yeah, local schools are not a business. <laughs> of course. 
Of course. And, uh, you know, I'm not trying to say that I think every aspect of the healthcare industry needs to be commercialized. Um, I, you know, I, I completely disagree, disagree with that statement. Um, I do think that what the coronavirus and the COVID response is showing is that we do need greater and, and I think there will be renewed emphasis on public health. Um, and I do think that there needs to be greater collaboration and coordination among health systems. Um, but also, you know, I think that we see that, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And in order to have incentives for people to build new technologies and invest in doing the really hard work to have the impact and outcomes that they want to have, um, there, do need, there does need to be a commercial incentive there um, in order to be able to have aligned incentives and have people use and find a value um, from products and services. There's no question there are parts of healthcare that are just amazingly broken. Congress is debating something called surprise billing, and they're debating mm -hmm. it. Yeah. De surprise billing <laughs> is a debate. I mean, this is this is out of whack. I mean, our, our healthcare is very strange compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, you know, and if we think about the rest of the world as well, you know, there are a lot of um, a lot of countries that have both a public option as well as a public system, as well as private insurance and private pay as well. So um, completely agree with you that, that both elements need to be there. You know, surprise billing is something that that should be unobjectionable, um, right? <laughs> when we go in and, and get a, a car mechanic to work on our ignition, we should know exactly what we're going to be paying on the other end of right, that. Right, when, when even the healthcare surprise. system calls it surprise billing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and of course, the, the healthcare system will call it something different. They call it balance billing, right? It'll be uh, of course, something where yes. they're going to come um, back to, to the consumer in order to pay. So, you know, I completely agree with you on, on that one. And I do think that there needs to be greater transparency around what things cost um, in healthcare. And not only that, just the shift from fee-for-service towards value-based care um, can also have a, a great impact well, on Explain that. that to me. What's the difference? Sure. You know, when I um, what we typically have for most commercial insurance today, so most of the insurance that you and I get um, and is paid for oftentimes by our companies, um, that is typically done on what's called a fee-for-service basis, right? So um, hospitals, doctors, clinicians make more money based on the services that are provided to us um, versus something that's value-based care, which is much more focused on the outcome. So incentivized to keep us healthy, to reduce the amount of services or costs uh, that, are, that are needed to create great health outcomes. Um, and so we're starting to see, and we've been seeing a shift towards value-based care um, towards those outcomes-based payment models, um, but it's been slow. And I think that what we're going to see um, coming out of this, uh, you know, not coming out of this, but uh, coming out of um, COVID response might be an accelerated move towards the adoption of those types of um, financial structures. It is interesting, I mean, whether it's work from home or other things that, and, you know, the big comparison to compare it to the Second World War and, and women entering the mm -hmm. work, workforce. But it's one of those instances where we may be able to look back and say, you know, this is where that pivoted, in, whether it's work from home or healthcare. Yeah, I think what we're seeing on the on the pivot is um, is everyone really focused on what's the best way for people to to get the care that they need right now. You know, I think that for a long time we've had the ability to do telehealth and remote care, um, but one of the challenges has been there's you know it hasn't been adopted in the way that it, it could have been to deliver that care. And you know, I see that as as really three reasons: one, you know, regulations incentives and behavior. Um, changing behavior is hard. 
And so what we're seeing right now is um, drastically reduced barriers to entry on the, the regulations and on that behavior change. Um, so we're seeing people, you know, not only doctors, but patients adopt telehealth and adopt remote care in droves um, in a way that they haven't before. And the regulations have been, you know, lightened and loosened in order to enable people to get the care that they need. Um, the challenge has been also that, you know, doctors haven't been paid for that kind of care, um, providing care outside of the four walls of the hospital. And so I think in order for that type of care delivery to stick and to be a meaningful change going forward, um, I do think that incentives are going to need to be aligned there as well. So when I go to the doctor and I say, hey, what's this, you know, this little spot on my cheek uh, and he takes a look at it or she takes a look at it, that's a different sort of billing than if he or she did it on a Zoom call? Right now, um, so up until uh, up until recently, that had been billed differently and reimbursed differently um, based on on different people's insurance. And so, what we have seen is a shift towards um, towards paying for that type of remote patient monitoring or remote care. Um, but telehealth has not been billed in the exact same way as if I'd gone into the doctor and been billed. Even though the uh, exact same that. thing was happening. It's exactly right. And not even the exact same thing. It might have been better for me to be at home, um, you know, not only from a convenience factor, if, you know, if, if it takes 15 minutes for me to send a picture, send a text and receive a response versus two hours that I'm taking out of my day to commute and, um, you know, go into a into a doctor there, you know, the staff there, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's not only um potentially better outcomes or the same outcomes, but a lot more efficient for myself and, and likely for the clinician. Yeah. And who stands in the way of that? Is it the insurance companies that are saying, no, we won't pay as much for, you know, this telehealth thing as we do it for an in-person visit? So we're starting to see um, insurance companies, you know, and the, the government being a major one, um, starting to pay for those kinds of things. You're um, saying that the government not. through Medicare and Medicaid is saying That's that exactly we won't right. pay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and so we're starting to see that shift where it will be, uh, it is being um, reimbursed in a much more meaningful way, but it's still not at the same level as going in person and, and getting care. But I don't think it's just the payment model, right? Uh, part of it has also been up until this point, consumer demand. We haven't seen consumers really pull or adopt telehealth in the way that we have, um, you know, in the way that frankly, a lot of us expected. And I think that what um, the pandemic is showing us is that uh, with this need, um, people are people are adopting it, and providers, meaning doctors and, and nurses, are adopting it uh, very quickly as well. There's some really interesting stats coming out of some of the the healthcare systems that I've talked to around. I think it was um, Stanford went from doing I think it was 400. Uh, here, let me grab the sure, take it down. So I think it was yeah, Cleveland Clinic before you know before COVID hit, they were doing about three thousand virtual visits a month, and then in March they did sixty thousand. Oh, good lord! Um, yeah, and so we're uh, we're seeing the the adoption of virtual visits. Um, you know, we're seeing a, a digital transformation that should have taken about ten years to happen it has happened in a matter of weeks, um, and I think we're seeing that across the board, whether it's you know remote uh, or working from home. Um, and the adoption of digital services, but we're seeing it for sure in healthcare as well. Um, starting it with telehealth, but I think we're going to see it across the board. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. 
With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So when it comes to other things with, you know, computerized medicine, you do need government, you know, to some degree, get out of the way when when Nest wants to upgrade my thermostat from version two <laughs> to version 2.1, right? It pushes it out overnight. If you want to mm-hmm. make a tiny tweak to a medical devices software, you've got to get Washington's permission first. Yeah, the um, and the FDA I think has been making really good strides into understanding, you know, not only understanding but adopting um, and adapting to those changes. Uh, and so we've seen this, you know, with uh, an example here being Biz AI um, with software as medical device, and they received FDA clearance, um, and the FDA is really understanding that. Listen, AI models by definition are going to continue to be learning models and adapt and evolve over time. Um, and so I think the FDA is, is making strides there, but I do think that there's uh, there's a way to a ways to go to understand that, you know, unlike a typical medical device, which is approved. And then in order to make a change, you need to go back for a new approval, recognizing that software in order for it to improve over time can't go back through those same processes um, and does need to adapt and evolve. Where do you think that is coming from on the government side? Is that just the evolution of government as they get more used to computers and AI? Is that... Uh, you know, uh, leadership from Republicans who are more laissez-faire. Where do you think that's coming from? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think that the, I think it's coming from, uh, you know, the <laughs> the optimist in me says it's coming from a recognition that this is a how the world works and b how uh, how better care is going to be delivered more efficiently over time. Um, I'm also not so naive to think that there aren't significant entrenched interests that are. Uh, battling from all sides, but I think that um, the arc is is moving in the right direction. They say death, death, death. Well, Obamacare is death. That's the one that's death. And besides that, it's failing, so you won't have it anyway. For example, I think every, there should be health care for everyone. I have a plan how to do that that's rational and will cost a hell of a lot less and will work. Investors certainly don't like uncertainty, and there's uncertainty in healthcare because the current president wants to get rid of one aspect of healthcare, and some of his opponents, and including several who may be the next vice president of the United States, have said they want to get rid of the current healthcare system. How do you <laughs> invest in an environment where the future of the entire system is in doubt? Yeah, yeah, it's um, you know it's a question I, I ask I ask myself a lot and get a lot. And the way we think about it and the way I frame it is. Um, is really when you think about the risks to it, you think about pen stroke risk, right? But I also think about pen stroke opportunity. So with the, the last administration, with the advent of ACA, uh, excuse me, with the passage of the ACA. And I'm just going to break in and say to those Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. Oh, thank you. You're, you're thank more you. than welcome. Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, yeah, so, you know, it wouldn't be a healthcare podcast if we didn't throw in some fun acronyms. <laughs> so <laughs> apologies for that. 
Um, but that also created opportunity uh, for uh, specifically funding for um, the move towards digitization of records. Um, and so, yes, there is penstroke risk uh, for a lot of different um, areas of investing in healthcare. But like I said, there's also penstroke opportunity. Now, I have not heard that term before. Penstroke, by the by, you mean the signature of a president of the United States? A uh, president or, you know, frankly, even at the state level. I think that what we see with policy and, and what I think about with healthcare is healthcare, much like politics, is inherently local. Um, there are health systems that are responding at a very local level and understanding um, the specific needs of, of the community, the specific needs of the state. Um, and when it comes to things like Medicaid, for example, states have a lot of um, option value in, in what they want to do there and how they want to invest. And so a lot of this is being done not just at the federal level, but also at the state level. I've noticed that there are people and patients who are willing to go, not even through their insurance company, but, you know, like they would order an Uber or a Lyft, they are, they're going on their phones and to these private organizations that can give them medical answers right now. And, they, and they'll pay for it out of pocket. Yeah, that's exactly right. And companies like Wheel, for example, are powering the clinical workforce behind a lot of that care, both asynchronous as well as um, video and telehealth visits. And so what they enable is if I'm a nurse and I want to um, continue to practice at the, at the top of my credentials and provide telehealth care, what Wheel does is they aggregate demand, aggregate patient care across a number of different companies, and they enable me to come online and do visits with patients um, in a very seamless way. So a qualified screen nurse can do much like an Uber driver does and say, you know, I'm home from work, but I've, I've got a couple hours in which I'm feeling up for it. I'll, I'll go on wheel and be a nurse. That's exactly right. And I think that one of the, the really great things that we're seeing here is um, it enables nurses to stay on the front lines of care as well. You know, unlike you know, my thesis here is also that nurses, really great nurses and doctors don't want to just sit at their computers all day. They want to continue to practice, um, but maybe they want to earn a, additional inf additional income um, by providing telehealth visits as well. Uh, and maybe again, not, not take an overnight shift that week if, if their kids are sleeping at home. So Kristen Baker Spohn is fixing at least part of the healthcare system through her investments in Wheel and PillPack and Viz AI. I never did convince her the system is irrevocably broken, or at least I failed to get her to say it. But I'm going to leave you with this. The story of a woman who had a baby and got two bills for the same procedure. She paid one, but the hospital kept demanding she pay the other one, too. The new mother got on the phone, tried to reason and work through the bureaucracy, but was told she'd be put in collections if she didn't pay twice for the same bill. So she did. She paid double. Now, I could tell that story to Kristen, who, after all, is an accounting and finance expert in addition to being a healthcare expert. But I don't have to. She already knows that story very well. Now, you know all there is to know about accounting <laughs> and healthcare billing. You've worked in healthcare your whole life, but you couldn't get the hospital and the insurance company to even listen to the error, much less do something about it. Yes. It was a very frustrating experience. Right. When you were at Collective Health, you did a webinar for companies that were interested in delivering the best maternity benefits to their employees. I mean, the fact that you just said, you know what, fine, I'll pay a double bill is 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 so broken. It's it's indefensible. Maybe, again, medicine should maybe not be for profit. You know, I think that that. Um 
I agree that it's indefensible. Um, and I agree that there should be uh, regulations and policies against that kind of balance billing. Um, and there's significant improvement that can be drawn from that. I think the to, to draw the conclusion that it shouldn't be for profit, um, you know, I, I disagree with that. I do think that there's an element of um, innovation and invention that can come from having financial incentives to to grow and improve businesses. But I think what's broken down has been um, you know, has been, frankly, the, the coordination as well as the transparency of how that all should work. Why did you decide to just pay the double bill? Yeah, it's um, you know the the <laughs> the decision was really around um, two different factors. One was the frustration with how many different phone calls and hours it was taking while I was trying to you know keep this adorable newborn alive <laughs> and well fed and uh, and get some sleep myself. Um, but the other component, you know, this is probably a story that that resonates with a lot of folks. Is you know we were a young family looking to buy our first house, and this was a bill that. Um, if it went unpaid, was going to impact my credit score. And so that impact to my credit score, uh, you know, I did a very simple cost benefit analysis that impact to my credit score was going to impact my ability to, and my husband's ability to, to buy a house together. So I decided to pay, pay that bill. Excellent. It was a very defeating and frustrating <laughs> decision. <laughs> Kristen Baker Spohn, healthcare investor at CRV. Sand Hill Road is produced by Sean Myers under the leadership of Sarah Bueno and Stephanie Adruni. For more interviews with Silicon Valley's most influential entrepreneurs, check me out on TV at Press Here. That's Sunday mornings on NBC Bay Area and everywhere in the world on iTunes and at PressHereTV.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.